1: He kō e ne nā Te reo Irirangi, o Aotearoa. On October 9, 1769, the Tahitian navigator Tupaea stepped on the shore of Aotearoa, New Zealand, for the first time.
0: A few months earlier, British Navy Lieutenant James Cook had brought Tupaya on board the HMS Endeavour as an expert navigator and translator as the ship explored the South Pacific.
1: Now they were at the mouth of the Turanganui River, which is also known as Gisborne's Port.
0: But a day earlier, when Cook first arrived in Aotearoa, he didn't bring Tupaya with him, and the Endeavour's first meeting with Māori ended in disaster.
1: When Māori first encountered Cook's men, those men opened fire and killed Ngāti Unione leader Te Maro. A day later, 100 warriors of Rungo Whakata gathered on shore.
0: But Cook had realised his mistake, so this time he brought Tupaya on shore with him. And even though Māori had been separated from Tahiti and the rest of Eastern Polynesia for 500 years, Tupia understood them.
1: Tupaya stepped forward and introduced himself. It turned out they had more in common than language. They shared cultural values like manaakitanga and faʻananga tanga. Loosely translated, that means hospitality and far no family connection.
0: But later, as Tupaya explored the Māori world, he saw things which were totally unfamiliar to him.
1: He saw kumara planted in rows of mounded earth and stored in deep pits.
0: He saw the huge wood and earth defences of pa, fortified villages.
1: He saw elaborate curved patterns on wooden carvings and in moko, tattoos.
0: None of this was anything like what Tupaya knew from home in Tahiti.
1: During their 500-year separation from the rest of the Pacific, the people of Aotearoa had transformed.
0: How? What changed? Well, that's what this episode's all about. The first 500 years of Māori history in Aotearoa.
1: Kumani Dunlop Aho.
0: Kor William Ray Aho.
1: And this is the Aotearoa History Show.
2: Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, in an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament, and no more land to be sold.
1: People often talk about Māori culture before tupāia arrived as if it was a single thing, and that is totally wrong. Māori were, and still are, a network of tribes and confederations, each with their own history and way of doing things.
0: There's also a tendency to imagine Māori as a people frozen in time. That the people Tupaya and Cook met in 1769 had the same culture and way of life as their tūpuna had arrived in Aotearoa hundreds of years earlier. And of course, Māori in 1769 did have a lot in common with their tūpuna, but in 500 years, any culture's going to change.
1: When people study Māori history before European contact, they usually divide it into three phases.
0: First, the earliest phase of arrival and occupation, around 1290 to 1400 AD. This is when humans first arrived in Aotearoa and began spreading out around the motu, or islands.
1: Archaeologists and historians call this the colonisation phase. It's a bit of a confusing name because we usually talk about European colonisation.
0: Yeah, so just to be clear, when we talk about colonisation in this episode, we're talking about Māori arrival in Aotearoa, not Europeans.
1: Next, the transitional phase. This lasted roughly from 1300 to 1600 AD. It's called transitional because a lot changed in this time. Moa and many other birds became extinct, the climate got colder, and there was huge social upheaval as people had to rely more on agriculture for food.
0: Finally, the traditional phase. Approximately 1500 to 1800 AD. This is when the cultural structures we see today as distinctly Māori were embedded. But again, Māori were not frozen in time. Society was still changing. There were huge internal migrations and increasing collaboration within and between tribes.
1: Talking about phases can make it sound like there were sudden changes throughout Aotearoa.
0: And that's really not how it happened. These three phases happened in different times and in different ways in different parts of Aotearoa.
1: Like down south, the tribes of Ngatahu relied on hunting, fishing and other wild sources of food all the way up until the 1800s.
0: Whereas in the far north, people were likely growing crops early on, taking advantage of the warmer climate.
1: OK, so let's start at the beginning. What do we know about the people who first came to
0: Aotearoa? Well, we know they came from eastern Polynesia, probably in or near Tahiti, maybe Rarotonga. The latest archaeological evidence suggests that several hundred people sailed to Aotearoa in waves of migration over about 100 years, beginning around 1290 AD.
1: These first arrivals lived in groups of roughly 50 to 100 people, made up of a handful of whānau, extended families.
0: All the Farno in a tribe could trace their heritage back to shared ancestors. Tribes were often named after a female tipuna, which helps explain why the Māori word for tribe is hapū, which also means pregnant.
1: Hapu were organised in a hierarchy which was largely determined by whakapapa or ancestry.
0: Rangatira, the chiefly class, were often the eldest sons or daughters of the eldest sons and daughters, going way back to ancestors described as descended from gods.
1: This meant they were particularly tapu, a word which can be loosely translated as sacred, and therefore held a lot of mana, a lot of spiritual power and authority.
0: So... After these first people arrived, they rapidly spread around Aotearoa and outlying islands.
1: Some Hapu travelled hundreds of kilometres from mainland New Zealand to places like Rangitahua, the Kermadec Islands, Mokahuka, Auckland Island, and Norfolk Island.
0: Some may have even made it as far as Australia. Stone tools have been found on the east coast of Australia which closely match those used by East Polynesian ancestors of Māori.
1: Archaeologists have found several places around Aotearoa and the outlying islands where early Māori lived. In many, there are giant piles of bones and shellfish, basically old rubbish
0: dumps. Occasionally, they find the foundations of old buildings and even tools and jewellery.
1: Looking closely at all these things can tell archaeologists quite a bit about the people who lived there.
0: For one thing, early Māori settlements, kainga, were usually only occupied for a couple of decades at most. They weren't permanent villages. Also, they're often found near river mouths and sit next to huge piles of bone and shell.
1: So what does that tell us? Well, it seems that early Māori moved around a lot. They would sail along the coast in their waka until they found a good spot to make camp.
0: The mouths of rivers were particularly good spots because people could paddle waka up and down the river to harvest food and other resources further inland.
1: When the local food sources ran out, they would leave and look for a new spot.
0: These early kāinga are also interesting because of the stuff we don't find.
1: Mm. For one thing, there are very few weapons. Those only turn up later.
0: As is often the case in archaeology, there are different ways of interpreting the evidence.
1: Maybe the lack of weapons suggests the time when Māori first occupied Aotearoa was more peaceful than later phases.
0: Or maybe weapons in this era were made of wood rather than stone, so they rotted before archaeologists could find them.
1: Or maybe they were so valuable their owners carried them away.
0: We may never know for sure.
1: But most experts think the lack of weapons does suggest this early phase of Māori arrival, exploration and occupation was relatively peaceful. For the first one or two hundred years, there were so few people and so much kai, food, that there wasn't much need to fight and lots of reasons to cooperate.
0: Instead of weapons, archaeologists find tools, particularly toki, types of ads.
1: We find toki all over Aotearoa and some of the outlying islands.
0: And interestingly, looking closely at these toki, we can tell they were mostly made from stone harvested and then manufactured in one place, Tipokahibi or Kupe, also known as Waito Bar.
1: Tipokahibi is about nine kilometres east of Waitaikiki, or what people know now Blenan. It's a long finger of gravel sheltering a lagoon where the Waito River meets the sea.
0: When the first people arrived there, it would have been just over a kilometre long and half a kilometre wide, covered in low scrub.
1: And looking at Te Pukohiwi in more recent times, archaeologists found a lot of stuff those tupuna left behind, including more than 40 tonnes of argolite chips, leftovers from making toki. That means hundreds must have been made at the site every year. It's like a toki factory.
0: Archaeologists have also uncovered giant umu, cooking pits, filled with the bones of thousands of moa and seals, plus 1,600 tonnes of shells.
1: Te Pokohiwi also has something we don't find at other early koanga. A cemetery, Urupa. The bones of roughly 60 people have been discovered there.
0: When archaeologists analysed those bones closely, they discovered some of those people had diets which were high in sugar and low in protein.
1: Now that suggests they grew up in tropical Polynesia, eating sugary fruit, not in temperate Aotearoa, eating moa meat. So these bones might belong to some of the very first people to arrive in these islands.
0: But what does this all mean? what was happening at Te Pōkuhiwi.
1: Well, try to imagine what exploring Aotearoa must have been like for these first arrivals. In many ways, it was an alien landscape, very different from the tropical islands they'd come
0: from. For one thing, these new islands were massive. The two largest islands of Aotearoa were many times bigger than the islands the ancestors of Māori had called home.
1: Paddling around the west coast, Māori would have seen a giant conical volcano capped with snow. It was once called Pukehaupapa and Pukeonaki, and today it's best known as Taranaki, meaning Shining Peak.
0: Travelling further south, Māori would have seen the long, jagged spine of Ka Tiritiri o Te Moana, the southern Alps. Many of the mountains were permanently covered in ice, which spilled down their slopes in massive glaciers.
1: Travelling around the north, people saw the mouths of enormous rivers. Some, like the Waikato and Whanganui, were so wide and long that people could sail or paddle their waka hundreds of kilometres inland.
0: They would have paddled through towering forests of Rimu, Totara and Kauri, filled with the deafening calls of thousands upon thousands of birds.
1: They would have heard the deep thrum of the moa, enormous flightless birds which could tower over a person.
0: and the occasional shriek of the poakai, the world's largest eagle, which hunted these moa with claws as big as a tiger. There was a lot to process.
1: (laughs) These early arrivals may have needed a place where different hapū could gather together, tell each other what they'd seen and what they'd learnt
0: they could share knowledge of which plants were poisonous and which were good to eat, which kinds of timber were good for firewood or making tools or repairing waka.
1: They needed a place for tanga to reinforce those connections, share gossip and memories of the good old days. They also needed a place where tohunga, expert crafters, healers, historians, priests, could practice their craft and teach it to the next generation.
0: This is what archaeologists think was happening at Te Pokuhiwi.
1: It was a place where Māori from all over Aotearoa could gather, kind of like our first ever capital city.
0: But within a hundred years, people seem to have stopped living at Te Pokuhiwi, probably because local food sources ran out.
1: Moa and seals reproduced slowly, and their populations couldn't cope with the amount of hunting going on.
0: By 1450 AD, the last moa had vanished, and the seal population had been decimated.
1: One of the patterns of history is that when humans arrive in a new environment, large animals tend to vanish. And it was no different with Māori.
0: Some of Aotearoa's native animals were especially vulnerable to extinction. More and other large birds were generally slow breeders, so it was difficult for them to bounce back from intensive hunting.
1: There's also evidence of extensive fires burning down forests in many parts of Aotearoa.
0: Some fires may have happened by mistake, but many were likely deliberately lit to flush out birds for hunting or to clear space for agriculture.
1: It seems that over time, Māori learned to manage natural resources more sustainably. They probably used ahui, or temporary bans, on gathering resources in certain areas.
0: With the extinction of large animals like moa and seals, most Māori had to fall back on a food they brought with them from the tropical islands, the kumara
1: the beautiful and amazing kumara. But this wasn't easy. To grow a decent crop of kumara, you need five months where the average temperature stays above 15 degrees. In tropical Polynesia, that means you can grow two harvests a year.
0: But if you hadn't already noticed, New Zealand's not a tropical island.
1: So it was only possible to get one crop a year, and only in warmer parts of the country, which we'll call the... Kumara zone.
0: To give a general idea, the Kumara zone included much of Northland, Waikato and the Bay of Plenty, along with many other coastal areas of the North Island. Māori also managed to grow kumara in coastal parts of the South Island, about as far south as Banks Peninsula.
1: By the end of the transitional phase, around 1600 AD, about 98% of Māori lived inside the Kumara zone, and most of the outlying islands like Norfolk and the Kumarek Islands had been abandoned.
0: Although some Māori did manage to live in places where Kumara couldn't grow. The tribes of Ngaitahu remained semi-nomadic, migrating between seasonal sources of kai. They also stored up harvests of seal and bird meat in pōha, airtight containers made from bull kelp.
1: Meanwhile, in the kumara zone, the switch from hunting to agriculture as the primary food source led to huge societal changes.
0: Yeah, you had to stay near your kumara pretty much all year to tend them and make sure someone didn't come along and take them.
1: So, Māori had to set up permanent settlements and it became really important to know which land belonged to your hapū and which belonged to your neighbour.
0: Imagine your rangatira and you want to set up a new kumara garden in a certain spot, how did you prove you had the right to use that land?
1: You used your whakapapa. Reciting whakapapa asserts both rights to land and your identity. The two are connected. Using whakapapa, you could say, hey, my claimed this land hundreds of years ago and have held it ever since. I can tell you their name, I can tell you how they did it, and I can tell you the names of all of their descendants up until today.
0: Any transfers of land or resources through marriage or warfare or gifting is also recorded in Whakapapa.
1: As land became increasingly valuable, it became increasingly important for Māori to record their connection to the whenua. In the process the oral histories became more detailed and they act as a library, a legal record and a family tree all in one. We're versatile, don't you worry. The famous Ngāti Maniapoto historian Dr Bruce Biggs put it this way in his book Ngāiwi iwi o Tainui when writing about the oral histories of the Tainui people.
2: For the first seven or eight generations little but personal names are recorded and pedigrees stemming from just a few of the immigrants. Then, beginning with Tawau in 1475, the tradition suddenly becomes more detailed. It is an astonishingly detailed record, matched in the Pacific only by other Māori tribal histories, all of which seem to follow a pattern of sparsely recorded remote past, followed by a sudden efflorescence of detail
0: beginning three to four centuries ago. The extinction of large animals, increasing reliance on agriculture and explosion in oral history marks the beginning of another of those archaeological phases of Aotearoa, the transitional phase, which lasted approximately 1300 to 1600 AD.
1: It was a time of big changes, including changes to the climate.
0: The transitional phase overlaps with what's commonly called the Little Ice Age at several hundred years of global cooling and rapidly changing weather patterns.
1: Historians think the Little Ice Age reduced harvests and increased competition for farmland and other sources of food.
0: This didn't just affect Aotearoa, by the way, it's linked to disruption and cultural change all over the world.
1: Mm. In many parts of the Pacific, from Fiji to Timor to Aotearoa, we see more signs of warfare in the archaeological record, and more mentions of violence and battles in oral histories.
0: But... Just because warfare was increasing doesn't necessarily mean it was common. Māori had ways of trying to resolve disputes without bloodshed. One of the most important was toa Mudu.
1: Say you're a rangatira and your neighbour insults you or trespasses on your territory.
0: You could launch an all-out war against them.
1: You could, but it would be an overreaction right, like life in prison, for stealing a packet of chips.
0: The punishment needed to fit the crime.
1: Mm, Exactly, you needed utu. Utu is a key concept of tikanga, Māori customary law. It's commonly mistranslated as revenge, but it actually means something more like rebalancing, cost or reparation.
0: We can understand utu a bit better by looking at it as one of three interlocking concepts. Take, utu, air.
1: Taki an action or issue, demands utu, an appropriate response resulting in ea,
0: balance. Coming back to our example, launching a war for a minor insult or trespass wouldn't be an appropriate utu. It'd be an overreaction and pretty costly for everyone.
1: And it might prevent both sides from achieving a state of ea.
0: So instead, people on both sides agree to a toa muru.
1: Tawamuru was sort of like a relatively non-violent plundering raid, a way of publicly righting a wrong that avoided direct violence.
0: Of course, Tawamuru couldn't resolve every dispute. When violent conflict did happen, it was usually utu for a more serious take, like for the murder of a rangatira or a serious dispute over resources.
1: And given competition for resources got more intense during the Little Ice Age, it's no surprise we start seeing more signs of conflict and competition in the transitional phase.
0: For one, thousands of pa, or fortifications, were constructed around Aotearoa. Some were just small forts to protect kumara pits, others were way bigger.
1: The biggest was Maungakeakea Pa, One Tree Hill in Auckland. In the 1700s it covered 17 hectares and could protect 5,000 people in times
0: of crisis. Pa also had religious significance. In fact, when Tupaya saw his first pa, he didn't think of them as fortifications at all, but more like giant temples.
1: And in a way, he was right. Pa often contained carvings of atua, gods or deities, and carvings of important ancestors.
0: Senior rangatira lived at elevated positions within pa, which were tapu spaces.
1: Particularly large and elaborate pa enhanced the mana of the rangatira who lived there, and of their wairahapu.
0: And pa weren't the only status symbols – Through the transitional phase, archaeologists start finding elaborately carved ornaments, tools, weapons and waka.
1: Some archaeologists say this suggests increasing rigid hierarchy, a growing gulf between high-ranking rangatira and lower-ranking common people.
0: That idea is backed up by the writings of some European explorers and missionaries, who commented that Māori seemed more conscious of social status than other Polynesian people.
1: Although we have to be careful about these kinds of European Observations.
0: Yeah, for one thing, they interpreted what they saw through a European worldview and often failed to understand nuances in Te Ao Māori.
1: These Europeans were also observing Māori at a time when they turned up out of nowhere. Look, imagine if aliens landed in New Zealand today and wrote down what they saw. They wouldn't see us acting normally. Would be freaking out. <laughs>
0: These new pa, waka and weapons we find in the transitional phase are often decorated with a new kind of art.
1: Traditional East Polynesian art involves a lot of straight lines and repeating patterns. Think of the tapa cloth made in places like Samoa and Tonga.
0: Māori retained these traditional rectilinear art styles of Eastern Polynesia, but artefacts from the transitional phase also start to include the kinds of curved, flowing designs which we think of today as distinctly Māori.
1: This might partly reflect that during the transitional phase, Māori were learning to work with new materials they
0: found in Aotearoa. Yeah, there was the fine-grained tōtara timber, the bones of seals and whales, and, most of all, pounamu, or greenstone.
1: Pounamu was super useful for Māori. It's a beautiful mineral, soft enough to be shaped into jewellery, and hard enough to make an effective tool or weapon. So it's not surprising pounamu was, and still is, especially prized as a symbol of mana.
0: Pounamu could only be found in the South Island, but it was so important to Māori that it was traded all over Aotearoa.
1: But they weren't using cash, instead Māori used a system of gift exchange, kind of like a mental IOU.
0: A good example of this is kaihokai, the ceremonial exchange of food.
1: Imagine it like this. Your whānau goes out and does a big harvest of titi, bird, in the summer. You'd preserve some to eat in the winter, but you'd also give some to other people within or beyond your hapū.
0: That gift created a debt, an obligation for utu. So, later that year, a neighbouring hapu might harvest a bunch of inganga, whitebait, and share that with you, resolving the utu and achieving air, or balance. Main deal.
1: Of course, in reality, it was way more complex than this. Māori lived in a web of mutual obligations which had to be balanced to maintain social cohesion and keep the economy running.
0: This system of mutual obligation, gifting and trade is still important to many Māori today, and it has deep roots in Māori history. It's probably how those toki made at Waito Bar were distributed far and wide in the earliest phase of Māori history.
1: It was a similar story with tools made from obsidian or volcanic glass. Obsidian was gathered at Tsuhua, Mere Island, in the Bay of Plenty, and traded to Māori who lived everywhere from Rakiura, Stuart Island, to Rau Island in the
0: Kumadex. Evidence of that kind of long-distance trade is harder to find in the transitional phase. Archaeological evidence shows Māori were mostly making stuff using local resources, another sign that hapū were becoming more closely tied to their whenua. When people did trade, it was almost always with closely related hapū. And that makes sense, right? You'd only give an IOU to someone you trust, and for Māori, that usually meant relatives.
1: The transitional phase of Māori history never really ended. It just flowed into the traditional phase, the phase Māori were in when Tupaya and Cook landed at Tūranga in 1769.
0: But this wasn't the end of Māori cultural evolution, not by a long shot. Looking at the oral histories and material culture, plus
1: written European accounts of Māori in the early 1800s, it's clear the culture was still changing.
0: Why? Well, for one thing, the climate had changed again. By 1650, the Little Ice Age was ending. Aotearoa became warmer and drier.
1: As the Kumara Zone expanded, some hapū migrated away from heavily populated northern parts of Aotearoa.
0: We also start seeing more collaboration between closely related hapū and the growing importance of wider iwi groups.
1: The word iwi also means bones, symbolising the deeper connections of hapū. They are typically named after ancestors who arrived on the first waka to
0: Aotearoa. Iwi connections became increasingly important to hapū in the traditional phase. There were also increasing alliances between iwi as time went on. A classic example of this was in the late 1700s or early 1800s when the paramount leader of Ngāti Toa, Pīkotirangi, got into a major dispute with other hapū of Waikato and Maniapoto, in particular Ngāti Apakura. Oh, Piko
1: Terangi reached out to his relatives, and they reached out to their relatives. Together, they formed a massive alliance of iwi and hapu, including Ngati Porou, Ngati Kahungunu, Te Atiawa, and Ngati Ruanui. Together, they planned an attack on Piko Terangi's enemies.
0: In response, the hapu of Waikato, Ngati Maniapoto, and Ngati Apakura made an alliance.
1: They got Ngati Whātua and hapu of the Hauraki Gulf involved too.
0: It was a large, diverse alliance of different iwi
1: but they agreed that in battle they would all follow the commands of an ariki, a paramount leader, Te Rauangaanga of Waikato.
0: This all ended with the Battle of Hingakaka near Tiawamutu. This may have been the biggest battle ever fought in New Zealand. It's said to have involved thousands of warriors, some say as many as 16,000.
1: Pico Terangi and his allies had the advantage of numbers, but the leadership was divided. Each hapu was commanded individually by its own rangatira.
0: Meanwhile, his opponents were unified under the leadership of Te Rauangaanga.
1: So, in the end, Piko Terangi and his allies were defeated.
0: In the traditional phase, from 1500 to 1800 AD. Oral histories make increasing references to rangatira and their hapū banding together under the mana of ariki, paramount leaders like Te Rangaanga.
1: It wasn't just about warfare. Often multiple hapū worked together to celebrate important occasions, create new gardens, and build new pā. And Māori still come together in this way today.
0: And while these projects were often organized by ariki, decisions were made collectively. The wishes of ariki could be overruled if their people disagreed with them.
1: The arrival of Tupae and James Cook marked the beginning of the end of the traditional face.
0: As more and more Māori began speaking, working and living with visiting explorers, whalers and missionaries and Aotearoa was pulled into the expanding British Empire Māori society would change once again.
1: It sure would. But that's a story for a different episode.
2: Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness? You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz podcasts. The Altero History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benj, William Saunders, and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston, and Mattai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Botox
1: Cosmetic, auto botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.